Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with procrastination expert, Dr. Tim Pitchell. Tim is a retired psychology professor whose research focused on understanding why we can become our own worst enemy through procrastination. In addition to journal publications and co-edited scholarly books, including Procrastination, Health, and Well-Being, and Counseling the Procrastinator in Academic Settings, Tim also wrote the brief and accessible Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, a concise guide to strategies for change. An award-winning teacher, Tim has shared his passion for learning through his I Procrastinate podcast and blog on Psychology Today. One key takeaway I had from our discussion was that the default strategies we rely on to overcome procrastination often do not address a key feature of procrastination, which is emotion regulation. Consequently, we may think we are moving towards a solution, when in reality, we are making the situation worse by focusing on avoiding discomfort instead of concrete action towards accomplishing our goals. Another key takeaway was that we need to be more critical of our projections about the future. Thoughts like, I'll be better at handling this tomorrow, or tomorrow I will feel more motivated, are types of distortions that can cause us to delay action and potentially get us trapped in loops where we are perpetually stuck at the starting line. If you are a chronic procrastinator, or if you simply want to improve your ability to stay on track with long-term goals, then this episode will arm you with all the tools you need to keep moving forward. Enjoy. Okay, today I am joined by Tim Pitchell. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, being here today. It's my pleasure, Ryan. Nice to meet you virtually. Uh, Same here. Uh, So today we're going to be talking about procrastination. Uh, I've gotten a lot of uh, buzz from my friends who are really interested in hearing uh, what you have to say about procrastination. Um, it's, it's hard to pinpoint why it's so popular now. Um, perhaps, I don't know, perhaps COVID had something to do with it. Um, perhaps it's just the uh, the overwhelming amount of information related to motivation that, that people can read about on the internet. Um why don't we start uh, by talking about uh, what procrastination is versus what it isn't? Because I know that uh, procrastination can very easily be mistaken for other other forms of behavior. Sure. It's a great place to start. And I, I like to start there myself. So I like to say that although all procrastination is delay, not all delay is procrastination. I think it's a really important place to start because we beat ourselves up a lot when things get delayed and we abuse ourselves. And at other times, quite ironically, we don't beat ourselves up for procrastinating. We make excuses for ourselves. So let me define procrastination and then some other forms of delay. 
Procrastination is the voluntary delay. There's the word, the voluntary delay of an intended action. I'm going to start with that part. Uh, so you ha it's voluntary in the sense that nothing external is making me delay. Then I'll come back to other examples where that can happen. So procrastination is the voluntary delay of an intended action, something that I decided I'm going to do this. Um, interestingly, just before you and I sat down to do this interview, I had an extra 15 minutes in my schedule. And I hope we do talk about schedules in a minute. Um, and I went and finished the vacuuming. Like I didn't just say, oh, I got 15 minutes to sit and wait for Ryan. I thought that's enough time to finish the vacuuming. And I did. And even if I didn't finish it, I, I got more work done on it. So I intended to do something. The voluntary delay of an intended action. Now, this is the key part. Despite expecting to be worse off for the delay. So let me say that all together. Mm -hmm. Procrastination is the voluntary delay of an intended action, despite expecting to be worse off for the delay. You see how it's got a certain flavor to it? And right. I can tell you right from the top, it's a negative thing, isn't it? Just by definition, <laughs> I get asked all the time, is there an upside to procrastination? And I like to say, don't you wish, right? We always want to turn a vice into a virtue. So just to add to that, how do I contrast it with other forms of delay? Well, there's purposeful delay. Uh, we might have decided to delay our interview today uh, if it would work better for either one of us for some reason. Or imagine that um, one of my children was, was sick today or needed me uh, or the car broke down or uh, a health problem came up. Well, that's inevitable delay. Like you'd understand that. You wouldn't say, oh, Tim, you're such a procrastinator. And it wasn't purposeful the same way either. It was like, it's an inevitable conflict that comes up in our lives. And then a final example I can give you is delay due to emotional problems. Imagine I got depressed and I just woke up and thought, I, I can't face you, Ryan. I'm really sorry. I, I can't do this today. Uh, I wouldn't call myself a procrastinator at that point. I'd say, yeah, my self-regulation's gone. I'm not able to muster whatever it takes to sit and have a conversation with somebody, but it's not procrastination. So that that's the the gist of it all right there procrastination is the voluntary delay of the intended action despite expecting to be worse off the delay and we can contrast it with purposeful delay inevitable delay and delay due to emotional problems there's three of them yeah yeah uh now based on that definition one of my first thoughts was well isn't it a slippery slope between having a reason a legitimate reason and a legitimate delay versus versus having the desire to delay the task and then inserting a justification right it, 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 in your experience in in measuring the reasons why people procrastinate is this justification that's sort of shoved in there is that a common uh, occurrence oh yes we're very good at self-deception uh, and it takes some wisdom. I work with some very high-functioning people in uh, workshops, uh, lawyers and judges and all sorts of professionals. And usually the question you ask comes at the end. Like, isn't there a, how do you really know when you're not procrastinating, when you're procrastinating? And I have to say, you know, at this point, it takes a bit of wisdom. I think by the time you and I finish this inter interview, people have enough insight into what procrastination is to be able to say, is that what I'm doing? Or is it truly an inevitable delay? <clears throat> now, it doesn't mean that. Let's imagine you're facing a horrible work task and a true inevitable delay pops up, at least what I've called inevitable delay. 
um, your kid needs to go to the hospital. That doesn't mean a little part of you is not kind of perversely relieved. Yeah. I have a legitimate excuse not to do the stupid time. I can call work today and say, I can't do it, taking my kid to the hospital. And I think sometimes we really wonder about ourselves at that point. We think, what kind of person am I? That and I, I've got other motive going on there. Well, yeah, that just means you're human. But the bottom line is that you will know the difference and it takes a little bit of wisdom, but you'll know by the end of this interview for sure. So, you know, you mentioned there's, you know, a, a certain part of you is ex, uh, excited when you are able to put something off. And it kind of highlights that procrastination uniquely provides both pleasure from delaying a task and stress. So you get mm -hmm. a mix of the of of positive and negative emotions that occur when you procrastinate. Can you talk a little bit about about those emotions and and what's really driving them when you're engaging in uh, procrastination? Sure. Back in the 1990s, when I first got an interest in this topic, I came up with that same insight that I think I thought we procrastinated because we we're going to have fun instead, but we end up feeling guilty. So what's going on here? How does that work? And so we did collect data on people using an experience sampling approach where we uh, constantly were checking how they were feeling. And sure enough, when you when you put off that you really don't want to do, there is an uptick in your well-being. You're, you're happier for the moment. But in the back of your mind, because of the nature of procrastination, expecting to be worse off for the delay, you made an intention with the idea that this is the one I should be doing this you can't help but have that cognitive dissonance and then what's a great indicator of cognitive dissonance one emotion guilt and so they're both they're both there and then of course stress as you said now what i'm doing is i'm leaving it to future self somebody we need to talk about i hope as well and poor future self's really stressed because you're going hey it's not getting any easier here in fact it's getting harder because i'm going to have less time so what's present self doing so you're absolutely right that uh, and I, I guess we better just jump onto this too, that, you know, you asked me to define procrastination. I gave you a quite a technical definition. I'm going to do it this way as well. So many people think procrastination is a time management problem. From our research and other people's research, we realize it's not about time management. It's about emotion regulation, emotion management. So let's go back to what you specifically said. We feel better when we procrastinate. Yeah, that's the whole, that's why we procrastinate because we're trying to get that immediate reward. Uh, we're, what we are, as uh, Roy Baumeister and Dan Tice and Ellen Bratlaski called it, giving in to feel good, right? We're trying to feel good now. We're doing emotion regulation. So yeah, okay, you're going to get that little boost. But interestingly, it's a misregulation of emotion because it's like having a, a great big candy bar in the middle of the day to give yourself a boost. Yeah, for a few seconds there, you might feel good. And a few minutes later, you feel sick. A little while later, you go down in the dumps, right? You've got this big insulin surge. Well, the same with anything we do to procrastinate. We might get that an immediate relief that I talked about before. Oh, thank God. I'm taking my kid to the hospital. This is a perverse example. Never used it before. But I'm rushing off to do this, and I don't have to do that task I've been dreading because I have a legitimate excuse now. And so you feel that immediate reward, but it's it's specious. It only lasts literally seconds. And then you go, oh, what's wrong with me? Especially if you don't have that legitimate reward. You're not running to the hospital at all. You're just saying, 
Well, you're singing the procrastinator song. I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I'll feel more like it tomorrow. And if that's going through your head, you're procrastinating. Yeah, the it it makes me think so much about our default settings. Like it it's it's a it's a little bit baffling uh to think about how we tend to really become attracted to these short-term fixes. This I'm going to mm-hmm. I want to feel good. Um it you know I I wonder um I I wonder is there some sort of positive benefit from from this whether it's in very specific circumstances or um you know is you know is there something else we can mine from procrastination in the sense that you know maybe procrastination is signaling you know we shouldn't be doing this you know maybe we should be doing something else hmm. yes uh two two things i want to say that yes we're we're typically seeking that hedonic uh reward but there's the notion the greek had another notion of the eudaimonic uh, the the deeper and longer lasting reward that we get from pursuing a meaningful goal. Uh, the reward is in the action. But if I was going to say there's a benefit to procrastination, which I never do, there isn't a benefit, but does it have something to teach us? You're right. If every time I go to face a certain task, I think I never want to do this. And this is part of my job. That could be a symptom that you're just in the wrong job, that this doesn't fit you. Now, the problem with me saying that is some listeners might go away and go, I'm in the wrong job, <laughs> as opposed to saying, you know, I really haven't developed very many emotion regulation skills, and my go-to skill is avoidance, and now you're even up in the ante. You're going to say, I'm going to avoid my whole job rather than do the hard work that really needs to be done, which is to develop other coping strategies, which I know we'll get to at some point in this conversation. But yeah, to answer your question directly again and to repeat that, yeah, if if I'm constantly finding that I'm procrastinating in some domains on some tasks, it's probably saying to me that this project it shouldn't be on my project list. Uh, I should outsource it or I should find some other way to not be involved in this because it just doesn't do anything for me, especially if it's the only thing I'm procrastinating on. I want to talk about uh, procrastination and culture for a little bit. Um, hmm. I'm curious as to what you think the role is culture, the, the role that culture plays in either encouraging or discouraging procrastination. So I was thinking, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was socially acceptable to throw around the term lazy, right? You could, <laughs> you could just say, you quit He's being, la- you could say quit being lazy and <laughs> it, it was socially acceptable. Now, not so much. Now, I I miss these days, and I'm I'm gonna try to not sound like an a hole here. I'm not advocating <laughs> too, too late. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not advocating for you know disrespecting people. I'm not advocating for you know downplaying attentional deficits, things that we measure, and in, in, whether it's learning disability or or cognitive disability. I'm not advocating for any of that. Uh, but I'm curious as to your specific thoughts on if we've made any errors in sort of completely changing the the language that we use when we talk about people not taking action. 
Yeah, that's a really, that's a great question and a difficult question. There is no psychology of laziness. You go to any psychological research database, you're not going to find a, a wealth of re, um, research on being lazy. And you're right. We impugn others with the term or ourselves. Oh, I'm so lazy or you're so lazy. Um, and it's not politically correct anymore because it's right. uh, you're, you're, you're hammering on the individual um, and not picking on the behavior, let's say. So maybe that's why we take it off the table. Now, I'm with you to a certain extent, too, to say, I think the shoe fits sometimes. Like, you, you never pick anything up around the house. You to always take the easy way out, even though someone else has to pick up the pieces. I'd want to say, you're lazy. Other people in psychology sometimes call that social loafing. I'm leaving it for you to do. Um, but we don't really understand. I think that term is so big we it, it consists of many things so i i would rather stick with the notion that i'd like to understand what's happening emotionally when you face a task that leads you to avoid it because uh, that's what we really see I, I don't see engagement i see avoidance and so rather impugn some higher order thing laziness which is abstract and you can't see what am i observing i'm observing you're not engaging you're avoiding and I want to understand why is that going on? And I would say the story is around uh, you're, you're needing to do that emotionally. In fact, my son and I had an interesting debate just last night uh, after dinner. He got a second helping of dinner, which is not like him. He said, oh, this is too much. And we were talking and he said, you know, there's an obesity problem. And I said, yeah, there's, there's an obesity problem for sure. The types of foods that we prepare. I said, but some of it is because a lot of us emotional eating and he hadn't yeah. talked about this before. And, and it, Emotional eating is very similar to procrastination. They're both self-regulation failures. We all know what emotional eating is. I think that I get to the second row of cookies in the bag, and that's quite a few cookies already. Mm -hmm. I know I'm not eating because I'm hungry, right? And and nutritionists will say, yeah, you're eating to fill some sort of hole, an emotional hole. And and procrastination is very similar. Um, you're you're avoiding to make yourself feel better. You're eating to make yourself feel better. You're, you do a retail therapy. You run out and buy something. And you know how specious that can be. It's a one second a wonder. And then sometimes you really have buyer's regret because you didn't even have the money to buy that. Like now you're in debt a little bit for it. So the self-regulation thing fits in there. And so rather than use the term lazy, uh, I'd rather say what's causing the avoidance. Yeah. So... You know, you kind of touched on this idea that so many behaviors that you might not connect together all sort of feed into um, emotional regulation, right? So you just mm -hmm. connected procrastination and eating, for example. Mm -hmm. um, in your book, you talk a little bit about um, delayed gratification, that there is a little bit of overlap between the, you know, the work on procrastination and all of the research on self-control on delayed gratification. Um, could you talk a little bit about why the, why delayed gratification relates so much to procrastination? Well, because even if I can recognize that I want to feel good now, I want to give in to feel good. If I have that modicum of self-control, you know, the classic marshmallow experiment that many listeners may be familiar with, uh, work of Walter Michelle and many students and colleagues, uh, young children who were able to delay taking the single marshmallow now in favor of taking two later, uh, seem to do better in life later. That's the uh, 
elevator pitch of that or version of that and oversimplified. But certainly the ability to delay gratification gets you far in life because you're willing to say, I'm willing to invest in a different way. I'm willing to invest. That could be money. It could be your time. It could be your energy. And so if let's say you're facing a task that uh, you just want to run away from, and you know that something else could make you feel good now, or you think so, if you have that sense of self-control, you might be able to get past it. And unfortunately then, Everyone beats themselves up and they say, willpower, willpower, if I only had the willpower, that's my problem completely. I, I, I can't delay gratification. And it seems like if I look at the research, if kids can do it, they have better lives and they can't do it, <laughs> their lives go down the drain. Well, that's a total oversimplification. All of these things are are learned, can be learned as well. It's always nature and nurture together. And so again, I would say, Oh, I could focus on learning some emotion regulation techniques that in the end allows me to delay gratification. It doesn't have to be a trait at begin with by being a state. And then if it's a state often enough, well, then, oh, look, that's my trait. So speaking of that, uh, speaking of states versus traits, how can you determine if you're a chronic procrastinator? Because everyone engages in procrastination at some point, obviously to different degrees, but um, is, is this idea of being a chronic procrastinator, is that, is that a meaningful distinction? Yeah, uh, Joseph Ferrari at DePaul University was one of the first people that used that term in the experimental research. I think clinicians have used it for a long time. Right. Uh, it's based on frequency. If we if we use a, just a traditional paper and pencil, pencil, we don't use that anymore, but if you're doing an online questionnaire, it basically asks how frequently do you procrastinate? If it's a lot, you're chronic, especially if it's across uh, uh, multiple domains as well. And Joe would tell you that he's done cross-cultural research. You wanted to talk about culture. He He's uh, translated various tests and given them in different cultures. And he finds that, Typically, it's about 20% of people who uh, get a score that would indicate they're frequently or chronically procrastinating. Now, that translate and test model is problematic in its own way because procrastination can mean different things culturally. Some languages don't even seem to have a specific word for it, but everyone seems to understand, because I've gone to lots of international meetings, the notion of needless delay. Uh, you know, There's a time to, to sow, and there's a time to harvest, and everyone seems to get that. Uh, and so it's chronic procrastination. Anybody could understand that by looking at, is it uh, is it a problem for me? Am I always putting things off? Are other people telling me, you're such a terrible procrastinator? You know, and I think that you began the episode here today saying that lots of your friends are interested in the topic. Yeah, I think that many of us do procrastinate. Let's add a little thing. I'm 68 now, and I've been doing this research for a long time. But and I don't say this as a uh, with hubris, but to say I rarely procrastinate anymore because I have all these wicked techniques. Now, do I want to procrastinate? You bet. Uh, but it's like saying, do I want to eat a whole bag of cookies? Like I can, say, yeah, I might want to, but I know how not to, and I know how not to avoid things. I know how to just get started. I know how to make progress that fuels my well-being. So, uh, yeah, not, you, I want listeners to know that. Just because uh, we might say that it's common for us to procrastinate, it doesn't mean that it's your destiny. You can learn how not to procrastinate. Yeah, um, and we're definitely going to get to um, 
a whole list of solutions and techniques um, because I think that's, you know, that's, that's good. That, I would assume that's where people are going to be the most curious is how do I crack this, um, this pattern of behavior. Um, before we get to the solutions, um, you spent a lot of time in your book talking about self-deception and the, the, uh, the ways of thinking that are hardwired that, um, that contribute to procrastination, these little biases in our brains. Um, if you had to choose sort of one area of bias thinking, one, um, one pattern of thinking that contributes most to procrastination, what would you say that that is? Well, you asked some pretty tough questions, Ryan. Um, just as an aside, not to give people the wrong impression of the, about the book, I don't write a lot about anything in that book in the sense that you know it's like terribly short. That's a funny adjective, terribly short. It's deliberately short. Right. Uh, because That's how I not... describe it, deliberately short. Right? Oh, it is. And, and, and some people would like to read more, but I said, you know, the problem with a long book about procrastination you don't. I don't even have to finish that, right? You, no one's going to pick it up. So it's meant to be something that truly a good reader could read in two hours. And any one pet chapter is like a few pages. So I don't deal with anything in too much depth, but I try to hit the nail on the head quickly. All right. So now let's let's think about biases. Well, you know, there's um, in 2017, Richard Taylor from the University of Chicago won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, for his work in behavioral economics. And he's written, co-written a book called Nudge that many people will know about, how we can move ourselves forward by kind of playing on those biases that we have, like taking them into account and just pushing ourselves in the right direction. And I heard him once say, my favorite thing I ever heard him say, it was in an interview. I was watching him on television. And he said, you know, we're more like Homer Simpson than we are homo economicus. <laughs> And I just love when, if you, if your listeners don't know who Homer Simpson is, he's a cartoon character that just know that he's probably the world's worst dad <laughs> amongst, he's a buffoon <laughs> and, and, and totally irrational. But, you know, for a, a Nobel prize winning social scientist to say we're more like him than homo economicus, that's just shouts at us to say we are predictably irrational. And so I think we have to accept that. And one of the ways we're particularly irrational is the way we predict how we're going to feel later. Dan Gilbert at Harvard University calls this affective forecasting because affect is an umbrella term for feelings and emotions and all those things, mood. So affective forecasting means what's my mood going to be like tomorrow? How am I going to feel tomorrow? That's what are my emotions tomorrow? And in a nutshell, we're biased. And one of the biases we have is presentism. We rely on the present to predict how we're going to feel tomorrow. And you see this commonly in everyday activities. And Dan Gilbert does a great job of giving us examples. And my favorite is, imagine when you go to the grocery store hungry and look at your cart, whereas when you go to the grocery store and you just finished eating at the restaurant next door. Well, their research and your own intuitions will tell you that your carts look different. When you're hungry, you got a second cart full of your favorite comfort food. When you're full, you're saying, oh, we don't need that much this week because we're relying on the present to predict how we're going to feel in the future. So how does that relate to procrastination? Well, we go back to that misregulation of emotion I talked about earlier. So you say, you look at a task and you go, oh, I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I'll feel more like it tomorrow. And you decide to put it off. 
Now, at that moment, and I've asked audiences this for years, how do you feel? And everyone will say relieved. And some people will be more honest and say, I feel great. I'm not doing that thing. I didn't want to do it. Yeah, you feel great. So how do you think you're going to feel about it tomorrow? Because that's when you say you're going to do it. Well, because of presentism, that bias, you asked me about biases, we think we're going to feel more like it tomorrow. So that insight is really important because we often think, but I, I, I think I'm going to feel like it tomorrow. Well, you think that because you're relying on a present emotional state and not taking into account that tomorrow's a different day and, and the task is going to be the same. So there's an example of, of a few that I give in the book, and that one's on affective forecasting and presentism about how that gets in the way of us acting now because we can convince ourselves as part of that self-deception that I'm going to feel more like it tomorrow. Now, I know some of your listeners are going, you know, but I can remember times when I did. Yeah, but the problem is that now your back is against the wall. So now you've got a fire lit under your butt in a different way. And so you don't work better under pressure, but you are working under pressure because very few people don't do it at all. They just do it at the last minute. And then people will say, yeah, but I work better under pressure. We don't see that in research. We see people make more errors of omission and errors of commission when they're put under pressure. And of course, just because you have less time for some tasks by its very nature, you can't do the job as well. Let's take writing, for example, which many tasks involve. Without um, at least proofreading, but better yet, revising, your writing's never going to be as good. But you feel great about your writing at that moment because you got something done at least, right? So there, there's a good example, I think, of biases and how we end up uh, tricking ourselves more like Homer Simpson than Homo economicus. Yeah, the the uh, the boost that relief that you get uh, when putting something off, even you know, even a day, um, that's personally personally the, that's the part of procrastination I relate to the most, um, and it, it almost feels like a snow, like a, a snowball effect. Like uh, I'm I'm wondering if <clears throat> if you see in the research that the more you put off a task, the harder it is to start. Cause that's, that's mm. some of the, some of the feeling I get is, is after a task, after I procrastinate for a couple, you know, a couple days, um, that task, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm invincible in terms of how, how far off into the future I can put it. I just want to, I just motivated to push and push and push. Um, yeah. Do you see that slippery slope phenomenon? Big time. In fact, a philosopher in a wonderful book entitled Procrastination, the Thief of Time, Philosophical Essays on Procrastination. I mentioned that in case people want to do some deep a deep dive into reading. Published in 2011, I believe, 2010. Good book. Um, one of the editors wrote about intransitive preference structures. And I won't stay long on this because it so, sounds so jargony. But a transitive preference structure, we know very well. If I tell you that uh, B is greater than A and C is greater than B, the trend of relation is that C is also greater than A. You, you all get that. Maybe maybe you didn't keep up with it because I'm only saying it verbally, but that's a, we all know that about transitive relations. Interesting thing with procrastination is you go, I'll feel more like doing it. So it's Monday. I'll feel more like doing it Tuesday. It's Tuesday. I'll feel more like doing it Wednesday. It's Wednesday. I'll feel more like doing it Thursday. Friday comes, oh, I wish I started Monday. That's when it does that intransitive flip. And so we're, we're fooling ourselves when we make that judgment about our preference at that point in time. And unlike you, where you've, you're saying that it 
it's seductive to you um, to get that extra day. I'm the opposite. Like if I end a day where I had a task on there and I avoided it, I, I say, Tim, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, you can do that. So why didn't you pull out some of the tricks that you use uh, the kind of the nudge notion, because I these tricks get me moving to get just some progress on it. Now, the last part of the answer I want to give you to that has to do with the very last chapter of that book that I know you've read. And that has to do with forgiveness. You see, when you when you put something off, you recognize that I intended to work on this yesterday. And I've used this expression before because I think we do this to ourselves. What's wrong with me? Like, why didn't I do it? And and now it gets even a little bit more daunting. And if we don't forgive ourselves, we've learned this in our research, we're less likely to try again. But people who forgive themselves for the procrastination are more likely to try again. So what, what you're not addressing there, perhaps, is the non-conscious uh, turmoil that you're experiencing, even though on the surface you think, I feel great. I can do this tomorrow, no problem. Part of you going is sweating. Going, I'm not sure. That's why I put it off. I know I put it off because I'm not even sure I can do it. Because I kept saying, I don't feel like I don't want to. But sometimes it's because I don't know if I can do this. And everyone's depending on me. And I, I could screw up. And I feel like I can imposture. So there's all sorts of negative emotions that can be going on in there. So is there a slippery slope? You bet. Mm -hmm. uh, can we extract ourselves from it? Only with some uh, honest facing ourselves, whether that be through self-forgiveness or even by saying, uh, well, I'll, I'll save that too when we do uh, some techniques, but I'll, sure, I'll, yeah, I'll... let's, let's, uh, let's go right, right into it. We've sort of set the stage for the, uh, for, you know, the, the detail, we know the details about procrastination. It's an emotional regulation issue. Um, let's jump right into the solutions. Uh, why don't we start by talking about what doesn't work because i mm. something tells me that that there's sort of a default strategy that people will glom on to in order to treat their own procrastination sure. uh, so what are some some things that are common for people to do to address procrastination that that just doesn't seem to work so there are two that come to mind right away ryan when i think about things that people do that actually don't work um and one of them is to make a plan. Uh, there's nothing wrong with planning, but I, I have this comic strip and you've seen some of those in the book themselves. And the very first comic that my friend who's a artist and quite a funny guy we created was someone's panicking about his or her work. And then says, a good meeting friend says, well, you need to, a daily planner. And so it plans out the whole day. And then a few minutes later, a friend comes by and said, I thought you were busy. What are you doing? He's watching television or doing playing games. And oh, my planner says I don't start until tomorrow. And I love the irony there that we capture in that comic because that's what we do. What happens is we make this plan and we maybe even go and buy a, an app or a, a physical day timer and we sketch things out. And we, what happens to us emotionally then is we feel, okay, everything's under control. But very frequently, we actually don't do anything more than that. We get, that's enough work for today. And and so the planner itself, I, I I plan very carefully. In fact, if I showed you my daytimer right now, you see that every, every 15 minutes of my day is all blocked off. Every day, all day, I can go back years. You could ask me, what were you doing at this time last year, Tim? And I could tell you. Now, some people think that's perverse. Like, like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> like Freud, Freud would say, are you like anal retentive? What's like, 
isn't that a horrible prison? No, just the other, it's freeing. It's a wonderful tool because time management is necessary, but not sufficient. I have great time management because time is the only non-renewable resource in my life. I don't know how much I'm going to get of it. And so I, I spend it very carefully. And when I do it that way, if something comes up, I can do it because I've got everything under control and I know what's going on and what's done and what's not done. And even when I change my plans, I can have an intention update. I can move something without procrastinating and say, oh yeah, it's better for me to do this here. No self-deception. And so, But if you just make a planner and your problem is procrastination, that's not going to solve the procrastination problem. The next day you're going to come to that part where it says, do the workout or do the deep work or you name it. Yeah. And I don't want to, I don't feel like it. And you shift it and you start to procrastinate. So one of the things I see that is offered as a solution is the day timer. And I love planning apps. And that's why I told you I use one religiously to use an, an often used word that maybe isn't the best. I use it all the time, habitually. Um, and I, I love it. And it's freeing for me. And it, I can, at the end of the day, I can do a, a forensic audit and say, how did you spend your day, Tim? Are you happy with that? Is that the person you want to be? And Because I color code everything too. How much time did you spend recreation? Well, I told you before we got on, when we got on the air together, I had I went for a bike ride this morning. It was wonderful. And then I did other things around the house and I can tell at a glance. Okay, I'm going to leave that alone. So, it, But it's not a solution to procrastination. We're going to come to those. The other thing that I see people often do and people say to me, what about the Pomodoro technique, Tim? You know, I set a timer says work for 30 minutes and then I take a break for 10. Good on you. Use it. I bet you it lasts three or four days. Because mm. then all of a sudden what you realize is that, well, this is a very deeply philosophical thing. Jean-Paul Sartre wrote about this. He called them guardrails. That we realize that the guardrails actually in my head, like I'm the guy setting the timer. Like no one else is controlling me. It's different than the law. It's, and so all of a sudden, the bottom will fall out of the Pomodoro technique because we realize that it's really just depending on me anyhow. And we quickly see it as a trick and that we're being we're acting in bad faith, if you, if you like the existential philosophy um, perspective here. So I don't think any of those techniques on their own are very helpful because they act as if someone else is controlling us. And then one day we wake up and realize, I'm playing a terrible game with myself. I want to go back to that idea that you were saying. Uh, so the premise is that the, the the Pomodoro technique is is flawed because right you're the one setting the timer, making the decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the problem with any sort of self binding, self constraints that we put on our behavior, whether it's you know, self incentives where we say, you know, if I work on writing this paper for an hour, I'll give myself a treat, something like that, which again, that's sort of idea of self-imposing reward, self-imposing um, restraint or constraints uh, mm -hmm. on our behavior. That's a big part of the, of, of the motivation research is to put these, you know, apply these self-directed barriers and, and incentives. Um, but I got the feeling when you were talking about the Pomodoro method that maybe you think that that's, that's not necessarily uh, the ideal approach. Uh, is, 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 is there a clarification there that you'd like yes, to make? Thank you. I, I will clarify. And I think it's implicit in what you were saying. It has to fit. 
like I think the Pomodoro technique can work for some people mm-hmm. if it fits them really well. But if you just use it as a band-aid and say, this is going to fix your procrastination, I'll say, not a chance in the world. The same author that wrote about intransitive preference structures wrote about how she did exactly what you were talking about. When she became a new faculty member, she realized she wasn't exercising as much as she did or wanted to. And she had knew she had the perverse ability to withhold her Friday night dinner out, which she really loved, uh, making it contingent upon her going to the gym. She leveraged her own self-control. We all have these quirks. Like we all have areas where we have control and we don't have self-control. And if we learn to leverage those, that's very powerful. I can also make sure that I don't have to think about it as a solitary internal characteristic. Uh, there's this notion of extended will that's really important. And what I mean by that is it, extended will has the notion of extended cognition. Both uh, One is the ex- extending your thinking and one is extending your will. And I think we all know what extended thinking is like. If I said to you, what's four times four, you'd say 16. You wouldn't miss, miss a beat. If I said, what's 486 times 373, I'm sure you tell me, I don't do that in my head. I can't even remember the two numbers. But if I gave you a calculator or a piece of paper and a pencil, you'd say, no problem. Yeah, you're extending your cognition. But we treat willpower and self-control as if it's like doing math in the head. It all has to come out of my own body. No, we can use the world around us. We can set ourselves up. I'll go back to that word for the third time. We can nudge ourselves in the right direction. So, for example... I can make a slide is what one of the authors, uh, Joel Anderson and Joe Heath call this in terms of extended will. Uh, Imagine that you want to go for a run in the morning. I put my running clothes right next to the bed. So when I put my feet on the floor, go, there's my running clothes. Let's put them on. It's a little, little tiny nudge to get you doing what you're you're supposed to be doing. And so those things uh, can make a a big difference that way. Um, And, but they have to fit. So I'm not saying that, Pomodoro won't work for everyone, but if if it's just you're thinking that it's going to work for everyone, no, not a chance. Can it fit some people? Yeah. Now, is it ever okay to jump to an easier task when you have this hmm. this task that you're procrastinating about? You know, my mind went to, you know, I've I've read somewhere you know, if you're, if you're procrastinating, you're having trouble, sort of this kind of trouble getting off the couch phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, even shifting the room can sort of spawn action. Um, uh, literally physically getting up, moving to a different room can kind of jumpstart your, your motivation. Um, mm-hmm. So are, are you comfortable saying that generally we shouldn't be doing anything other than the task that we're waiting to complete? Or are there some caveats, some things that are okay to do instead of the task that that we're, we're procrastinating about? It, that question takes me back to your earlier question uh, about how do you know whether or not you're self-deceiving? Um, there's a little bit of insight there because there's nothing wrong with some people call it priming the pump, getting started on a few easier tasks, getting some momentum up, and then boom, you go into the big task. But the other problem is, and you see this with people a lot, is that they start doing all the little tasks and their whole motive is to avoid the big task. We call this um, compensatory procrastination in its own way because you're compensating. 
I didn't get that big project done today, but the dishes are done. The clothes are put away. The house is vacuumed. You're doing all these things that are ostensibly on your to-do list, but weren't as important. Let's contrast that with, I'm at my desk and I've got this big report I'm, I could go right to, but instead I write a couple of emails first just to get warmed up. Fine. If, like, Imagine you and I run a tennis court. Do we immediately start to serve at each other and start the match? No. We'll hit the ball back and forth a bit and we'll warm up. I'll even take a few practice serves. And you can do that with tasks as well, as long as what you're not doing is avoiding the game to stay with that metaphor. I see. Uh, now, one of the the most powerful tools that you address for dealing with procrastination has to do with implementation intentions. Could you talk a little bit about what are implementation intentions and how they can help us address procrastination? Okay, yeah, but I'm going to do that and I'm going to do a follow-up because that book was published in 20... I wrote that book in 2010, so we're talking about 12 years. And I've put a lot more focus on emotion-focused coping, and I'm going to come back to that. But by no means am I taking away from implementation intentions, just I want to add this other. So we all have intentions. You and I had an intention today to sit down at 2 p.m. Eastern time and talk to each other. Uh, a goal intention. I could have a goal intention of getting more exercise. But what we need is something more specific than that, because our goal intentions can be so vague as to be anemic, weak, no motivational force to them. So an implementation intention, this is the work of Peter Galwitzer and his colleagues, uh, makes a more specific plan. In situation X, I'll do behavior Y to achieve sub-goal Z, as we Canadians say, or Z, as we say, I say more everywhere else in the world. I'll do behavior X in situation Y to achieve this sub-goal. And just doing that puts the cue for the action into the environment. So I'm not relying on my... Uh, habits anymore or what I'm thinking about, I say, oh, okay, I finished my coffee. I said I was going to wash the dishes. In situation X, I do behavior Y. It's a very powerful technique. Now, they've added to that, Peter Galwitzer and his colleagues, uh, something called mental contrasting. And rather than get into the jargon there, I'll tell you that if your, your listeners can go online and look up WHOOP, W-O-O-P, and you can see how this acronym stands for wish, outcome, obstacle, and plan. What do you wish? Gee, I wish I'd floss my teeth more often. And this is a common example for me, uh, not that I don't floss anymore. Uh, and what what's, would be the outcome? I wouldn't have gum disease and my dentist would stop hounding me about it. What's the obstacle? I never did it before and I don't remember it half the time. And when I do, I think adds ah, too much of a hassle. Now, plan is the implementation intention. In situation X, when I pick up my toothbrush, behavior Y will be, I'll put the floss on the counter. In, and then I have another one. When I put down my toothbrush, situation X, I'll pick up the floss. You can see how you can do this for just about anything in your life. What's my wish? What's the uh, outcome I would desire? What's the obstacle that I see? And let's make a specific implementation intention uh, in situation and then behavior and to move yourself forward. So it is very powerful. And that's why I wrote about it a lot, but, and here's my big, but even with making those, I can have an emotional reaction to them. I had an emotional reaction of flossing my teeth for goodness sakes, even though it can take like 30 seconds to floss my teeth. Um, it might take you a little bit longer. What is, what is that? Uh, 
owner experience may vary. <laughs> um, but in, in any case, what you have to be able to do is deal with emotions. So what do our brains do? Our brains think and feel. And as you, as you, even as you're listening to me right now, you're attending to my message, but you're thinking all sorts of other things. And I don't even know what you're feeling, right? But you've all, all sorts of feelings, some of them quite squirrely. I'm, I can guarantee it because you're human. And we take them also as darn seriously, right? I, mm -hmm. I have a feeling or a thought and I can just go down, as we say, go down the rabbit hole. I follow that thought or I follow that feeling. What we need, and this is where I put a lot of emphasis on uh, intervention for procrastination, is we need some non-judgmental awareness of those feelings. I have to acknowledge them. Yeah, I'm feeling like I don't want to do this task. My whole body's screaming at me. I'm, I'm afraid or I'm uncertain or I'm bored or I'm frustrated or I'm resentful. I have all these negative emotions about this task. It's okay to have this emotion. I don't have to be this emotion. And if you take anything away from our conversation today as a listener, that to me is one of my most powerful thoughts or mantras during the day. I can have this emotion. I don't need to be this emotion because I can work from some other part of my inner landscape, my own curiosity, my own need to achieve, my desire to do well. And then I can move ahead with my intention despite the feeling. The feeling's still there. I'm not denying it. I've acknowledged it. I'm allowing it and I'm moving forward. And then I dump in all the other things, the implementation intentions that nudges me in the right direction. But I, I did really want to add that, that uh, we have to be ready for the fact that we're going to have emotions that, as you said so well, a few times through the interview, procrastination is an emotion focused coping strategy. So if we're going to do a good job of beating procrastination, we have to deal with the emotions. So, it seems as though the skill that can help us most with dealing with procrastination is becoming more comfortable with the uncomfortable because right that that initial moment when we have to choose between pushing forward to doing that task that we don't want to do or doing something else that's that critical moment um Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist and podcast host, um, when he, in one of his episodes, he addressed a solution that he thinks is helpful for procrastination, which is exposing yourself to a, a mind state that's more uncomfortable than the one that you're facing when deciding what to do. So the logic sort of overlapping with the addiction literature. So- mm -hmm. If you look at dopamine, and, and so dopamine is the neuromodulator that basically is responsible for telling us to, oh, do that. This is, you know, motivates you to act. That when we are procrastinating, we are, we are you know, sort of below baseline in, in dopamine. And one of the ways that we can get back into a positive, you know, a positive state towards motivation is by making that trough that baseline level even deeper so his his suggestion was you know sort of like a cold shower for example so you don't want to work on your your essay for school that gives you discomfort your dopamine is below baseline you're a motivated you take the cold shower that pushes you even further away from the baseline and by going further away from the baseline 
you are able to recover sooner. Um, so uh, apparently, you know, there's some neuroscience suggesting that the, the steeper the trough, the more quickly we get out of it. I'm curious. I, I know that that approaching discomfort is an important piece of overcoming procrastination. I'm curious as to your thoughts on on that strategy. Well, I like that episode. And I listened to Andrew as well. Uh, and I was just re-listening to it the other day, in fact. It's probably still, if I were to click on uh, Overcast and on Andy's podcast, that might be the episode that comes up. Well worth a listen. He and I don't come see completely eye to eye on it, not to take away from what you just described as a mechanism, but that the another neural mechanism that we have to take into account is something we call the amygdala hijack. So not only is your dopamine uh, playing a role here, but if you're um, having a strong emotional reaction, it's overpowering your ability um, to bring in the executive functions of the prefrontal cortex. And Andy talks about this in various episodes as well. I think that the last episode, but see on a podcast like this, it won't make much sense. But in, in an episode where we talked about prefrontal cortex um, um, functioning and what executive functions are, uh, part of it is impulse control. And so, you know, if we can uh, address our emotions and, and let go and get rid of the amygdala hijack, then we're able to kick in the prefrontal cortex that allows us to uh, delay gratification, to go back to what you've talked about earlier, not to react, uh, act on our impulses to run away, uh, and to be more planful and organized. So everything you said and Andrew said about dopamine is true. Uh, but I would also say that the focus I'm taking is the other side of it, which is I'm trying to acknowledge that I have a really big problem here with an emotional overrun, and I'm going to downregulate the amygdala reaction so that I can upregulate executive function. In fact, interesting research by some German colleagues showed that, and this goes back to your notion of chronic procrastinators, they took people who scored high on frequency of procrastination and compared them to people who scored low, they use functional MRI to look at uh, components of the brain, like cell structures. The amygdala is a cell structure that way. And lo and behold, they found that the volume of the amygdala is larger for the chronic procrastinators, indicating they have a, a more active uh, emotional response to the world. Now, again, again, for listeners, you don't go away at the dinner table tonight and say, well, I learned that my problem is I have too big an amygdala <laughs> and uh, I'm doomed. In fact, uh, there's other research to show that mindfulness meditation uh, can reduce the volume of the amygdala and the connections with other parts of the brain. And and if, if just stay on Andy for a minute again, too. If you listen to a lot of his episodes, you'll realize that uh, he and all his guests that are neuroscientists quickly will say, yeah, the brain is crazy complex, and yeah. we're only beginning to understand that. Uh, and so I'm using my description of the amygdala hijack or even your example of dropping the dopamine down lower and having that uh, rebound up. Yeah, these are oversimplifications of the complexity of what's happening to us neurally. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's round out the solutions uh, as we, as we wrap up. Um, is, is there, um, you know, I, I was thinking, the most amount of procrastination or perhaps the worst consequences of procrastination relate to long-term goals. So things that require grit over time, you know, I, 
for example, writing a book. Um, as we close, could you just sort of maybe weave in uh, a broad perspective on 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 procrastination in terms of what else we need in our toolkit uh, to to pursue long term goals that we might want to procrastinate about? Very good. Are you writing a book? I am not. I am not. <laughs> but uh, it, it is definitely. I, I have a feeling like the the big projects in my life. Yes. They are by far most likely the ones that I will procrastinate about. I don't procrastinate about small things. You know, if mm -hmm. I see, I've I've been able to overcome the well. I need to clean. I can push mm -hmm. right through that. The hardest time I have is with the big projects, the ones where they require basically no reward uh, over uh, until until yes. long, long in the future. Nope. No short-term reward. Even right. back, if you think of Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you know, you're operating in the urgent uh, short-term frame really well, but not in the uh, non-urgent long-term. Yeah. And I agree with you. That's where a lot of us can procrastinate uh, because there's no inherent reward or push. So I think I love your idea of a toolbox because you're going to use these different tools different ways. So the very first thing is you do need to be planful. As I said, time management is necessary, but not sufficient. So you should have intentions and goals. And then I would say, and you need to make implementation intentions so that you're starting to situate what you're going to do when. That's very helpful. I would I, You want to acknowledge that you're not going to feel like it necessarily. In fact, you, in, as you're planning, you might be all stoked. But when it comes to that time, don't think that, remembering the bias, the affective forecasting, now you're going to feel the same way. So don't be startled by that. And when you have those emotions, non-judgmental awareness. Yeah, I'm kind of freaking out here. I don't want to do this at all. And I'm trying to wiggle out of it. It will only take a minute to, and that's, you're going down a slippery slope there. Because you say, I'll only take a minute to check my email or my social media feed. And of course, three hours later, you wonder how the hell did I get here? So stay put. One of the first things you have to do, perhaps, in terms of motion regulation is just Take a couple of deep breaths. If you find your whole body wanting to run away from a task, uh, that big writing task, for example, or something else that's long-term, take a few deep breaths just to calm, literally calm your body down. Go back to the amygdala hijack for a moment. You, you can downregulate that way. And then address the emotions that are there. Allow them. Um, and then, this is magic, and we haven't talked about this yet, although in the, the book you've been reading, the chapter is just get started. And that came from some research we did in the 90s as well. Uh, some of the research I already talked about tangentially. And I remember some listeners of my own podcast came back to me and said, Dr. Pitchell, it's just so great you put all this stuff up here. But, you know, you say just get started. And sir, you know, if I could just get started, I, I wouldn't have a procrastination problem. Could you do a little better than that? Do you think? <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I'm glad you laughed because I did too. So I went to David Allen and and uh, people who have read uh, anything on time management have run into David Allen and getting things done. And he says so beautifully, you know, we don't do projects. We don't do tasks. We do actions. And I thought, yeah, that's where I need to hang my hat. And this is a, another huge mantra for me. I mentioned the one. I can have this feeling without being this feeling. This is my go-to strategy throughout a day where I'm not very motivated. What's the next action? And keep that action as small as possible. And, and it could be that 
I, I want to start that big task. Well, what's the next action? I need to open my laptop and open Word and either open the document I've already started or start a new document. I can do that. I'm not thinking any further than that, but I'm actually opening it up and doing that. And now I'm going to go back to your example of, well, could you do something small rather than jump right into the meat of it? Yeah, you know, if I'm not ready to write the, the opening sentence of something, I could say, okay, I'm just going to throw out a few title ideas and maybe... Maybe I'll just move to the references and write down things that I want to make sure I include. And because now I'm starting to get the juices flowing and I realize I'm working on it. I'm I'm doing it. Right. And and then I might say, well, I, I don't know where to start. I don't have to start at the beginning. I can start in the middle. I'll say, what 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 would you write if you're going to write something? And just start to write. You see, what's the next action is so crucial that way. Because what we've seen from social psychological research is that progress on a goal. Progress on a goal, no matter how small, fuels our well-being. It's one of the few places we see this upward spiral because when your well-being is fueled, you make a bit more progress. And so there's nothing so powerful as to say, what's the next action? Now, again, the toolbox idea, I know I'm going to have to be ready for other things. Like all of a sudden I hit a tough spot and I'm having these negative emotions. I might have to breathe again and down-regulate. I just got to stay where I am. And then there's another big one. I've talked about forgiveness, but I want to talk about perfectionism because I think a lot of listeners are there because not only they procrastinate, but they're, they really are suffering with a lot of perfectionism. And there's a wonderful Canadian, Canadian poet songwriter that many people will know by the name of Leonard Cohen. Uh, he died in 2016 now. And he has this wonderful song, Anthem. And in that song, he re he sings or he uh, reads, uh, Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack, a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And in saying that, it's another one of the things I have to remember on days when I really need some light, but I'm fighting against the cracks, the things that make me feel ashamed to be me, or I feel like I'm not living up to my own expectations, that we're not perfect. And it's in accepting our common humanity that we find a space for self-forgiveness and a willingness to try again. Because if you're struggling with procrastination, that's a self-change project. And it's always going to be two steps forward and one step back, or some days three or four steps back. And if you're not willing to open up to that and just say, yeah, I'm not perfect, and nobody is, and some people call it redemption, there's all sorts of traditions around this, but to let yourself... Um, be that, and then regroup and move forward, then you're really not going to win the war. You'll win the odd little battle with an implementation intention or what's the next action, but you're going to have to become comfortable in your own skin and recognize that, yeah, I got this stupid monkey mind, thinks and feels, thinks and feels, and I just got to recognize that's what it does. It's okay. I can still move on with my goals. So there, there's a whole bunch of things, right? That, And I try to paint it into the kind of a, a temporal flow of what it means to be a human being trying to get on with one's life. Because in yeah. the very end, you know, procrastination in some ways is not getting on with life itself because this isn't a dress rehearsal. You don't get to make up. We don't, you and I don't get to make this hour up again, right? We chose to be together for an hour. You showed up, I showed up and that hour is gone. And so the question becomes, what are you going to do with the next hour and the next hour? And rather than let that overwhelm you, just say, yeah, but that's a, me authentically engaging in the 
my life. And if you're doing that, there's, there's no procrastination anymore. Well, I'm glad you were able to just mix the practical aspects of addressing procrastination with some of the philosophical elements. I think that think that is especially helpful when tackling something like procrastination because it's it, it has the potential to always be with us. And uh, thank you so much. I appreciate you uh, uh, being on today. Uh, Tim Pitchell, everyone. Thanks, Ryan. For more on Tim, visit procrastination.ca. Also, check out his book, Solving the Procrastination Puzzle, a concise guide to strategies for change. Finally, I would also recommend listening to Tim's series on procrastination through Sam Harris's Waking Up app. If you enjoy this podcast, please share an episode with two of your friends. Follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. As always, feel free to email me with comments or guest suggestions at Why Do We Do That Podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>